Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Edward Brown here with me today, and take advantage of taking a look at Edward's website. Head over to PacificPrivateMoney.com, and Edward and his team specialize in hard money lending, especially if you are really interested in getting your projects funded. Edward and his team may be the great team to talk to regarding that. So again, it's PacificPrivateMoney.com. But Ed, I really appreciate your time here today. Yeah, Jack, Edward Brown, how are you? Yeah. So Edward, there's you have 20 plus years of experience in this space, and it's going to be great to have to see some ups and downs. And you probably have some opinion of the market conditions here today as well. Would that I, be fair I, to say? Very fair. Yeah. Actually, I started my business back in 1983. So it's been a number of years doing financial consulting, tax work and accounting work and all that. And then getting into the hard money loan space back in the early 1990s. So I've seen a few cycles and I'll tell you the best time was during the SNL crisis and of the early 90s. We used to say it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Because the SNL crisis happened where banks and everybody had to pull back so much that there were still good real estate deals out there, but there was nobody to fund them. So you could get these fantastic deals as a lender. And then you had 2008 happen and a lot of people fell by the wayside. And then they came back quite a bit. 2011, 12, 13, 14 were really good times to, to get back into the business. And now we're starting to see that things are starting to get a little challenging again. So at Pacific Private Money, we specialize, this isn't the only type of loan we do, but we specialize in the owner-occupied consumer bridge loan. We're one of the few lenders in, licensed in California to do that. So there's a lot of lenders out there who do fix and flip. That's not our specialty. We're probably not as competitive, even though some people will still come to us for that. And I think the reason is because it's a pretty expensive barrier of entry to get into the owner-occupied consumer bridge loan. So effectively, you're talking about someone who owns a house, but they want to buy a different house. And most of the time, the banks will say, great, sell your first house and then buy your next house, especially if you have a mortgage on the first house. We try to be very holistic lenders on that. And we'll look and say, they got so much equity in their current house that we'll be glad to make them a loan on the target house and cross-collateralize with the existing house. And then that way, they don't have, the borrower doesn't have to move twice. They save a lot of money that way. They can stage their old pro property, et cetera. And again, I think the reason when I said the expense of being in this space as a lender is challenging is you've got to have special licenses, software, legal, continuing education. And you're talking maybe 80, $80 to $100,000 to get into this space as a lender. A lot of fix and flip lenders are doing very well on their in their business right now. So why do they need to expand? They don't want to spend eighty to one hundred thousand dollars. So we haven't done a full analysis on this, but uh, our CEO said that he would not be surprised if we were the number one private lender in the United States for doing owner occupied consumer bridge loans. We'll probably do close to a billion dollars this year. 
You mentioned California. Is that really where you do most of your lending or are you, are you across the United States? We are primarily in California, but we have expanded across the United States. So we're getting licensed in a whole bunch of other states and have affiliates there. Since we broached the subject and you kind of mentioned both downturned economies there, yep. do you see any similarities of what we're facing here today? Some signs we should be aware of? Yeah, I think we're going to have some prices level off. I don't think we're going to have a complete crash. I think one of the main benefits to the Dodd-Frank rules that happened in two, after 2008 was that prior to that, banks were lending out money, we say, as long as you could fog a mirror, right? So it was really a credit bubble. Over the past 14 years, the banks have had to clamp down. So they're primarily lending you have to show ability to repay. So I don't think we're having really the credit bubble. And as long as employment stays fairly steady, you know, there'll, there'll be potentially a big problem if we have a lot of unemployment where employers are laying people off because then you're going to have a situation where people just can't pay their mortgages. So we, I think we are seeing, A, as interest rates are going up, there is a larger amount of buyers who have stopped on their contracts. They've canceled their contracts. And the interesting thing from our perspective is we've then become a bigger fish in a smaller pond because a lot of mortgage companies have laid off their brokers because as interest rates have gone up, there's been very little refinance going on. And so there's been less product for them to have their brokers work on. So effectively, you've had less brokers out there. So we actually have increased our affiliates with brokers bringing us deals. And we actually have too much deals and not enough money. And so we've mm. been very aggressive for our investors as a great place to, to park money. So again, I don't think we're going to necessarily see a crash, but it's something that we actually will have to follow because again, things can change, right? But I don't think we're going to see these double digit increases in, real, in, in the real estate. Interestingly enough though, every. I've always said this, everything is based on alternatives. You got the stock market that goes up and down. Cryptocurrency isn't really backed by anything, but everybody needs a place to live. And I don't care how bad the economy gets. I'm not going to live in a tent. I'll find an apartment or a smaller house or whatever. And I think most people are the same. So as long as we have just in general, a, a large population of people, and there's been so many restrictions on housing in various markets, primarily in California, but in other places too, where it's so expensive and there's so many roadblocks for builders to get permits, et cetera, even though they say they want affordable housing, uh, there's just, there's not, there, there's still too much demand and not enough supply. And that's going to, that should keep the prices relatively stable. I'd be curious. I've been telling a lot of people lately that with the interest rates where they are and they're, they're continuing to climb, that we need to be a little bit more selective and a little yep. bit more purposeful regarding the type amount of discounts we get on a property. The investors are starting to definitely have been changing their underwriting guidelines. What are, changes are you seeing in your world? What changes have you made? Uh, on the underwriting, uh, the originating, excuse me, on the originating loan department, we have lowered our LTVs a little bit from 70% down to 60 to 65%. Still trying to stay away from the rural areas because it's a little bit too hard to get the true value. 
Our competitive advantage basically is speed. We don't have 11 levels of approval like a typical big bank. So we can, we like to hear the story and how someone will exit out of our, our loan. So if the story makes sense and there are other factors such as maybe a high FICO score, extra money in the bank, et cetera, we can push the envelope a little bit more and go back up to that 70%. And potentially with a cross collateral, we've actually done 100%. But the cumulative loan to value stayed under 70%. You mentioned the bridge loan for yeah. those people living, they're trying to move to another house. What type of stuff are you doing for real estate investors? Is it something similar? It is. Yeah. We're just about to fund a loan where somebody is putting down like 35% and they're coming to us for probably, because, I'm guessing they're coming to us because we have a very good reputation of not leaving anybody at the altar. So if we say we're going to give a commitment on a loan, we've always funded it. And most people come to us for the larger loans, a million, two million, three million dollars. We'll do two, three hundred thousand dollar loans, but it gets expensive because again, we're the interest rates and the points, an underwriting fee or doc fee, we call it $2,495. That kind of gets expensive if someone's only getting a two hundred thousand dollar loan. But again, it's it's the reputation I can't really say enough about because it's you can't take the chance. If you're closing in on a real estate purchase and some broker says, oh yeah, sure, I can get to the money from XYZ company, you better make sure that they really do have the money and can come through. We're, we're the bank, basically. We have the money. You don't have to worry about when we give you a commitment that we have to go out and find the money somewhere else. It sounds like you're in a balancing act right now, though. You, you mentioned you have too many deals, not enough money. Yeah. Uh, there are some people, unfortunately, you're having to turn away at this point. Not turn away. We've had to push back a couple of loans from the standpoint of where we, let me, uh, I'll fill this gap in and maybe it'll make more sense. So our fund, we have four different funds. Our, the main fund that we're trying to raise money for, specifically for these bridge loans, is called our Freedom Fund. And in all of our funds, you do have to be an accredited investor. The minimum investment on this one, we are, we're trying to keep at a minimum of 250000 At 250000 and up, we pay a flat 7%. If you put in 500000 or more, it's 8%. And if you put a million or more, it's 9%. And here's the best part is there's no hold. You just have to give us 30 days notice when you want your money back. So it's almost like a money market account except there's no check writing privileges and you do have to give us 30 days. And the reason that we can provide that liquidity is that this freedom fund is set up primarily to originate loans, package them up in 5 million or so in dollar increments. And then we have four different large institutions that love our loans. And so we do these trades every roughly two to three weeks. If you look at it this way, every two to three weeks, we're getting millions of dollars back in our coffers. And the first thing we do is ask, has any investor wanted their money back? And if they have, then we go ahead and cash them out. If, if they don't, then we go ahead and fund a new loan. And so we've had situations where people have requested money back. And instead of them waiting 30 days, we paid them back in four days. I've been in this business a long time, and I don't know of any other real estate investment, or even actually any kind of investment right now, where you can get in today's market, if you put a million dollars in 9% with 
very conservative issues because again, all we're doing is just funding the loans and then selling them. And yes, they're buyback provisions, but it, the loans we do are so conservative. Otherwise, these Wall Street type companies, these institutions wouldn't buy them. And they, we have contracts with them. Where else can you get 9% relatively liquid in today's market? I, like I said, I've been in this business for a long time and where we are right now is, is a very good place. So what we're doing is we're, and the reason we're willing to pay those rates is because we're just effectively just lowering our profit a little bit. We need to entice people to invest and give us larger amounts of money because we've got millions of dollars of loans in the pipeline that we'd like to fund. And sometimes you get people to say, I don't know, 7% is pretty good. And you say, yeah, how about 9%? So it gets them off the, off the couch. In fact, it's really interesting. We had I, about a month ago, I had a, a guy call me up and he said, I've been watching you guys for about two years and I realize you guys are a legitimate company and I'm ready to pull the trigger. And I understand that if I put a lot of money into this freedom fund, that I'll get a higher rate. And he said, I'm planning on coming in with a million dollars right off the bat. I said, if you do, you get 9%. So he came in and we talked for about 20 minutes. I went through the fund with him to explain all the risks, et cetera, which are few. It's very, you can't, nothing's riskless, but risk reward, this is very conservative. And after our talk, he wrote a check for 3 million. And about four days later, even before he had a chance to get his first check, he said, can I add another million to that? And this is his first time with us. But again, he'd been watching us for a couple of years, so he knew that we were legit. Just remind everybody, PacificPrivateMoney.com for this information and some additional guidance there. Edward, you are throwing out some pretty large returns there regarding what you're saying. What are some of, if you don't mind me asking, what are some of the gotchas that people need to be aware of? You did say that, unfortunately, it's not always a guarantee, but I think we need to be a little transparent regarding what could maybe happen. Yeah. In fact, that's the question is the main question because, and I, my whole thing is don't lose money. I want to keep my principal intact. So the question comes up very simply, what could go wrong? How could I lose my money or lose some money or all my money? And I look at something like this and I say, if we were to do a loan where the market crashed within a couple of weeks, where suddenly all the buyers of the loans decided to renege on their contracts and not buy our loans because they have to buy them if they fit within the parameters. You can't, you can't force a company, right? You can't get blood out of a stone. So if these big institutions suddenly renege, then we would have to hold those loans rather than sell them to, to the institutions. And if there was an overnight crash where a million dollar property where we made a $600,000 loan is suddenly worth 500000 in a sh- in a very short period of time, and we couldn't sell the loan off, and we foreclosed on the property and had to sell it for 500000 then yeah, we would actually have a loss of 100000 We'd lose 16% of our money. The question is, how realistic is that scenario? I think it's highly unrealistic. And if it were to happen, it were to happen, I'm not sure I'll live in a cave because if the real estate market drops 50% overnight, I mean, that, that's a really scary thing. People look at the great recession, which was absolutely awful, but it didn't drop overnight. It was a prolonged decline. 
it took about three years for it to drop roughly 25% in most markets, 25%, because we're not in, in this fund, we're not buying raw land, which can have wild swings of prices. And again, people would look at the Great Recession, and I look at it as an absolute disaster, and the market dropped 25%, but it took about three years. But the question is, could it happen? And I say, absolutely. Treasury bills are probably the most conservative investment because you're basically gambling on the federal government putting gasoline in the, in the machine and printing more money, which they've been doing a very good job of doing that right now. Is it 100% guaranteed? No, the federal government could renege. Are they going to? Probably not. So again, everybody needs a place to live. Real estate generally is a slow moving market. It's not an overnight market. And these owner-occupied consumer bridge loans are written for 11 months. So it gives people time to sell their property or refinance us out when they have time, et cetera. In 11 months, could the market drop more than 40, 50%? It gets possible. Here's one thing. During, even during the Great Recession, when people were underwater, a lot of people still paid their mortgages. It was only when the banks decided to force them into foreclosure because we were doing hard money back then. And we worked with borrowers who said, hey, listen, I don't want you to foreclose. I'm underwater. But as long as I make my mortgage payment, we say, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Is that, I hate to press on this, but is that one of the reasons why you decided to move and expand into the rest of the United States, I would have, we saw the biggest fluctuations of real estate on the East and West Coast and where the Midwest was a bit more stable. Was that part of the decision-making there? Mostly it was, we were getting demand. We were getting a very good reputation. People heard about us around the country. And when people in, let's say Nevada, wanted to buy a property, and sometimes what would happen is they lived in California, but they wanted to buy Nevada. And so in order to help them buy their Nevada property, we'd have to get licensed there. And so it just slowly morphed. There's still, even though California lost a Senate seat or a congressional seat because of uh, an outflow of people, there still is a fair demand of need for California. People are always moving from one place to another, be it from San Francisco or to San Francisco, as an example. It's not that we've been necessarily scared of California, although there are definitely some disadvantages to California where there's some very good other states out there. Because like one of our other funds is a fund where we buy discounted notes, primarily seller carryback notes and primarily in the state of Texas. But trying to find the notes is a little bit, has been a little, little challenging on that. But anyway, I hope that answers your question about how. Yeah, that sounds like you've got your hands in a lot of different things, frankly, and yeah, your yeah. company is really trying to find the best avenue for funding and returns. When you're talking about the, you're working on those much larger projects, the million to, you you were throwing out some pretty sizable project. Are you funding just the purchase of that project or are you doing any funding regarding repairs and updates as well? We don't lend based on the ARV after repair value. So if somebody comes to us and wants us to give them 90% of purchase, but only 70% of ARV, we say no, because our, we're not into really taking much risk on that. And it, it shows in the fact that so far, uh, no investors lost any money. We, we've either made a little bit of money or made a lot of money on a foreclosure because a, a, a foreclosure with us is not that common 
because of how we do our underwriting. And I got to say, actually, remember now, we actually helped fund a multi-level, multi-level, a multi-family apartment, basically, in New York, 44 million. We had quickly gotten that together. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we were the first company to use blockchain, which kind of goes outside my bailiwick, to put together a $100 million securitized offering for one of the, one of the big boys about three years ago. Yeah. That's actually, it's kind of interesting, actually, how we started our Freedom Fund. Our first fund, Pacific Private Money, we would just do regular old hard money loans, so to speak. And what we were running into was, let's say somebody needed a $600,000 first mortgage. And in our bank account, we only had 400000 Where do we get the other 200000 So what we would do is we, would, we went to a bank, basically, and got a $2 million temporary line of credit to, to help fund these gaps. And then the bank would get paid off as soon as new capital came in or a loan got paid off, et cetera. And one day, this is back in, I think, 2018, one day the bank woke up and just said, you know what, it's been fun. You guys have been great, but we're changing our strategy. We're just not doing these lines of credit anymore. You got to pay us off in full by December 31st, which we did. So the CEO went to our attorneys and said, we still need this line of credit. Is there any reason why we couldn't start our own fund that would provide a line of credit? And the attorney said, no, sure. So we started off fairly slowly and built that fund, which is our freedom fund, which was originally set up to just do a line of credit and then get it paid back. But then we found these buyer, these companies came to us and said, you guys have great underwriting, great loans. We want to buy your loans. We have money, but not enough good deals out there. And so now we're up to 45 million in just a few years on that fund. Yeah. Wow. That's some pretty amazing growth. It is. And in fact, what happened was we also, we never really did much in the construction loan area. What ended up happening though, is we kept getting requests for construction loans. And rather than just say, sorry, we can't help you. We actually found a company that we associate with where they do all the construction loans. So rather than us being in ourselves into too many pies, it is associated with us. Like I, I don't do the underwriting on the construction loan. We have experts in that area who handle that. We have our free fund, which does that temporary loan. We have our Southwest note fund that buys discounted notes. Cause that was the other thing people individuals would say, I've got this great note that I want to sell. And, and you look at the note and say, that's a fantastic deal. I want to buy that note. And as you start seeing more of that, you say, you hate to just let it go to the wayside. So you just set up some separate division that you have your experts handle that. So you're not so spread thinly per se, because you have different people who have expertise in different areas. So how long do you typically hold the no- note before you sell it to this third party? Two weeks. Three weeks? No, not long at all. Wow. No. Actually, I thought he would have to go through some sort of seasoning period at least. On these, on the ones that we originate, basically, the it took us over a year to get our institutional buyers on board where they did a lot of due diligence on us. And then once they felt comfortable, they said, okay, here are the parameters. Nothing too rural. You can't have more than $3 million of any loans to one borrower and et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe there's one of the institutions that says, we don't want anything in San Francisco, for example. So they've given us parameters. And as long as our loans fit within those parameters, we have the contract that they have to buy it. And we're doing these trades every two to three weeks. So we'll fund a loan today. 
And within two to three weeks, it's packaged with a bunch of other loans and sold to the institution. So we don't really have time for the loan to go bad. There's a lot of, frankly, hard money lenders in the marketplace. With that being said, I would love your opinion as to what are some of the questions people should be asking to make sure that actual hard money lender, whether you're in an, let's start with as you're an investor, I want to invest in your freedom fund. What type of questions should we be asking to make sure they're reputable and are, is just frankly a good fit? So one of the questions and we answered it is what's the worst thing could happen? How, how, what can happen? How could I actually lose money? You know, so give me the bad news. So that's one thing. Another is how, how do you guys actually make money? How are your interests aligned? Because if we're paying up to 9% to a, an investor, people say, him and 9%, that's got to be risky. And is it, we're doing the loans now at close nine and three quarters to 10%, plus we charge points and we're only paying you the max 9%. So we're making, we're just lowering our profit a little bit mm-hmm. for us. So, you know, why you want to find out how the interests are aligned with the sponsor, how they're making their money. Ask again, all the various things that we like about our freedom fund. What's the hold time? So like, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think all of these reg 506 reg D funds, you have to put a one year minimum hold. So our documents actually do say that it's a one year minimum hold. However, there's no penalty for an early withdrawal. And so I think that's one of the things where I, I would look at, and I would not invest in a fund where your money's tied up for five years because things change and you may want to get your money out. And if you're locked in for five years, that's, that could be challenging. So that, that would be one thing. I'd ask how long in business the company's been, how much under man- assets under management, What's the continuity of the company if one person leaves? The experience of the of the operators, the their background, their underwriting. That would be that'd be the main things. I'm sure if we had another four hours, I'd come up with some more, but I think those would be the main ones. Sure. No, that'd be great. So how about as a lender? What are some of the questions just to make sure that it already sounds like you're really if you're looking at bigger projects, would be the would it be a better fit? But what other some of the other questions as a lender we should be asked. Okay. So our underwriters are pretty much ex-bankers. So they've been through this ring before. And we, A, the, one of the first questions that I like to ask, because, you know, again, I, I used to have my own hard money loan business company, so I'm very familiar with this. The first question is, why are you coming to me? You know, why aren't you going to Wells Fargo or some other company that's going to charge you a lot less? And I'd like to hear the story. Again, usually it's speed. It's I've got to close this. I'm getting a fantastic deal, but I'm closing the deal in three weeks and there's no bank that can work that fast. Mm-hmm. could be a situation where they were working with a bank and things are getting delayed. And so maybe they've already, they, and they already maybe have the appraisal and we'll look at the appraisal and not just take it for face value, but we'll analyze it and decide if it's a good fit. So I'd like to know what the experience is. If it's, if it's someone who's just buying their, for owner occupied, then again, it's going to be the strategy. So what, A, how, why are you coming to us? B, how do you intend to pay us off? And usually for the owner occupied consumer bridge loans, it's going to be going to sell my original property or I'm waiting for 
Like I've worked, we've had situations where somebody worked for a very large computer company named after a fruit, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And the reason the bank would let, lend this guy the money, even though he, he actually made more on his W-2 than the request for the loan. This is the first time I'd ever seen that before. It was because he only worked for the big company for 18 months. He had not, had, had not had a full two years with them. So the, so the, I think Chase or Wells Fargo, one of the, one of the big boys who was going to fund the loan said, Hey, in six months, we'd be absolutely glad to cash you out or to refinance you out, but we can't give you the loan until you've worked there for two years. So we looked at it and we said, absolutely. We'll lend you the money. It was, I think, 60% loan to value. And then six months and a day later, he paid us off. Again, I want to know the exit strategy. And for owner-occupied, we do have to do by law a little bit of a deeper dive because we're regulated just like everybody else. For the fix and flipper, I want to know what their experience is, again, what their exit strategy is, how much in reserves they have. And sometimes we just get a feel for people, you know. I think about this one that I heard of. We didn't make this loan. This guy wanted to buy this property that was on each side. It was like two parcels on each side of an airstrip. We thought that was really odd. And he wanted to borrow, I think it was $3 million. And he said that the property was worth $6 million. And we said, okay, how do you plan? What's your exit strategy on this? And he says, I don't know. That's why I want a three-year loan from you so I can figure it out. And I was like, eh, that doesn't work too well. And also certain things like years and years ago at my old company, when I was CEO, this is back in the 90s, we had a guy come. He, you could just tell he had an attitude. And he said, oh, my portfolio is $100 million and I want to borrow $4 million against it. And we said, okay. And we looked at his portfolio. No appraisals, just basically a, an Excel spreadsheet, so to speak. And we just kind of had a feeling this guy was not quite legit. So we just kind of said, just so you know, we're going to make you personally guarantee this loan. Oh, no, I, I can't do that. And, it wasn't, and there was no like legitimate reason for it. And we said, really? Your property's worth $100 million? And for a $4 million loan, you're not willing to protect it with a personal guarantee? Nope. You got it. If you want to do this, you just got to do it on its own. And I look at that and I say, no, I don't get a good feel for that. Whereas like for me, I own property and I own this building and the bank makes me sign the personal guarantee for the loan. And I think I'm at maybe 40% loan to value on that. And I, and they question, I said, are you going to have a problem personal guaranteeing this? I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm not going to steal my building for about a 40% loan to value. I'm going to beg, borrow, and steal to make sure you get paid. You know, that's the sort of thing. You can see the difference between the two. Right. Yeah. So how long is your traditional note then? How long? You mentioned anywhere from just a couple months to that one example was three years somebody was requesting. What is your typical? So for the owner-occupied consumer bridge loans, we cannot write the loan for larger than a year. So that's why we do 11 months. The average payback is between four to six months. Okay. Uh, if the borrower needs more time, we can't put it in writing from day one, but we're not, in, we're not trying to steal people's property. So we'll go ahead and extend the loan, but it's unfavorable at this point. The, for the non-owner-occupied consumer loans, generally we're trying to stay two to three years. And, and by the way, for we actually 
believe it or not, we actually have done loans where we've, by law, have, if it's owner-occupied, we've had to write a 30-year fully amortized loan. And we have done that. But the reason we did that is because the, we, the, the interest was high enough where we were 99% sure that the borrower was going to pay us back as soon as possible. And there was a good exit strategy within a year. Sure. They could. The boss things change and we could keep that loan for 30 years. Okay. Edward, this was really eye-opening. I appreciate you giving me all this time here today. Uh, One more time, PacificPrivateMoney.com. But I do have a few rapid-fire questions for you if you want to tackle them. Sure. So we've all seen the late-night real estate investing, get-rich-quick promises in those infomercials. What is one real estate investing myth you'd like to bust here today? It's going to be very difficult to buy money or buy my, buy property with no money down. I think a lot of these companies are just, obviously, they're just trying to sell their schooling. And I think it's really difficult to to do that, especially if you have no assets and no no experience. The best thing to do is to, to partner up with a few people who actually have money and kind of show them why they should hire you. So what is the biggest business mistake you've ever made? And what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake I made was in doing some land deals back in the 2007, eight era. Even though we did the loans at fairly conservative loan to values, when the market crashed or long pro- prolonged decline, the land dropped a lot more and faster than residential housing. It was a very expensive lesson and I try to stay away from land deals. What book would you recommend? And you're not allowed to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Think no. and Grow Rich. <laughs> no, actually, not funny. I was asked this question on another podcast. Honestly, it's the Bible. And the reason is because there's so much wisdom in it, and especially in Proverbs, Psalms, but the, it's, a living, it's a living word. Every time you read it, you learn something more. And it's prevalent for what you're going through. You don't think, yeah, too, that book that's been written anywhere from 2000 or 2,500, 3,500 years ago up to 2,000 years ago has any relevance, but it's, it's incredible what God shares with you. Yeah. I, we, my wife and I were talking about this just recently is the fact that every, we've been hearing some of the same accounts since we were little, right? Yeah. In, in Sunday yeah. school. And you read the same chapter or verse and it could mean something completely Absolutely. different to you at this day and time. It's remarkable how that works. Yeah. In fact, I'll give you one quick one is, and I think it's in Psalms where it could be pro- Proverbs, where it says, you know, who doesn't cost, who doesn't count the cost before going into battle? And I, I use that to think about, let's say there's various challenges that you're going through with a loan and you have to say, do I want to spend the money? And what am I going to get for that? Am I getting into a big lawsuit? Is it worth it? Is it worth the cost? So you, you pretty much have to count the cost before entering into something like that. So again, that's something that was written thousands of years ago, but it's applicable today for that specific topic. Neat. So if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I think one thing, and I don't have to necessarily be too much younger, but in my old company, one of the mistakes that we made was in the, and I'll, then this is actually I think good advice, and I've written articles on this, is for an investor. If you're interested in a 
in an individual deed of trust because there are people who just don't like funds because they can't control what's going on in them. And I get that. My advice is don't go into a fractionalized deed unless, A, you own more than 50% and you pretty much know everybody so well that you can, for the most part, control them. And the reason I say that is that years ago, my old company, before Pacific Private Money, we didn't have a fund. We did fractionalized deeds. And we had a special permit that allowed us to have more than 10 people on a deed. And everything was going great until it wasn't. And we had to foreclose. And once we had to foreclose, even though we had, we actually were having had foresight on this and we had powers of attorney signed by all the clients so that we could make all the decisions. Guess what? When we got to a situation where we foreclosed, the title company pretty much controls whatever their rules are. And they say, we want every single person who has a vested interest on this because we assigned deeds of trust, had assignments on there. Everybody has to sign in front of the notary. Sure enough, we get a couple of people who would say, no, unless I get more or get cashed out, I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And one of them, it was an attorney and, uh, and there's nothing we can do. So even though we own more than 50% and we had these powers of attorney, we couldn't do anything with the property. And then you'd have to get into lawsuits and partition actions and all this other kind of, or, or tenants in common on owning a property. So uh, my advice would be, do not do any fractionalized deeds. Unless, if you want to own 100% of the deed, that's fine. But don't do fractional ones unless you, A, own more than 50% and B, know everyone so well that you all think exactly alike, which is tough. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often, right? No. Edward, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here today? No, I think, we're. you know what? You did, did a pretty good job. One thing I will say is, and we're starting to see more of this, because we think that there are going to be more foreclosures going on, I believe the buying of discounted notes or that are either in foreclosure or about to go in foreclosure are going to be one of the nice profitable areas. And we've done that in our Southwest fund and we're expanding into other areas like that because there, there's, even if you get a property where somebody is being foreclosed on, and we try to keep people in their houses, we're kind of like the good guys, but every once in a while, people are just put their heads in the sand and they just say, no, I'm walking away. Oh, okay. If they're buying discounted notes can be very profitable. So we're, especially with the market dropping, you can actually get a bigger discount than the value of the drop in that. Does that make sense? You'll pick up stuff for pennies on the dollar, but it's definitely more work. I think that's going to be the next good wave of where you can make money in real estate. Maybe you'll come back and fill us in on that strategy a bit more in detail. So one last time, pacificprivatemoney.com. Edward, thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Jack, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.